Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. I'm talking today with Adam Lehrer, who is a critic, a writer, and an artist. And he is also the co-host of System of Systems podcast, which I had the pleasure of appearing on not long ago and um, had a very uh, stimulating conversation. So please check that out. Um, So thanks for coming on, Adam. It's nice to talk to you. Yes, Jeff. It's a pleasure. One of the only good things about the last year or so is being able to form this online crew of friends and dissidents that we've all been a part of. And, and we even managed to uh, do an IRL meetup. And yes, we well. have an IRL. Yeah, Jeff and I actually have an IRL friendship now. So this isn't merely an ephemeral Twitter friendship. Yeah. So anyway, hopefully more summits to come. But in the meantime, uh, we, are, we are in the Zoom space and we are talking about some of Adam's recent writing about various issues surrounding the kind of current um, you know, congealment of of the sort of neoliberal slash left slash intersectional, whatever we want to call it, consensus and how it um, dominates politics and the art world and what the the prospects for um, positions outside of that are. Um, And, you know, even for those of us not sympathetic, particularly to their prescriptions, what more um, reactionary or conservative uh, voices might might offer by way of of kind of interesting critiques and critical yeah. standpoints so so that's that's what we'll be uh, talking about particularly adam's recent piece called uh a marxist defends the great reactionaries so before that though i wanted to talk a little bit about both of our um kind of historical relationship with with marx and marxism as a way of thinking about the world theoretical framework because you know, in, in terms of the, the project of this podcast is, is kind of about ideas that are in some way on the outside. You know, Marxism's position has shifted significantly in the past probably 10 or 15 years, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Speaking And speaking very roughly to start off, you know, when I was first interested in it, actually, I was talking to another guest about this recently, but um, I don't know, did you ever read Marx for Beginners by um, Rias, the sort of lefty oh yeah i i got the book actually it's pretty helpful yeah it's great it's a really good book but um that was kind of my first immersion in uh marxist theory i would say as a teenager and uh yeah it's a very good explainer and um it's you know it's definitely worth checking out but you know when when i first came across that which was i believe written in the 60s or 70s so it was something of a relic by that time yeah um, yeah, you know, from a period when there was kind of more popularized Marxism, let's say, um, you know, but when I first got into it, my immediate impression was, this is something that, you know, and this is obviously post, um, post end of the Soviet Union, etc. You know, that this was something that was a seemed to me a very powerful theoretical framework that had no sort of mass political movement behind it, or any potential for becoming a, a kind of political reality. Yeah. And, you know, while it's it's not as simple as this, um, as as we'll get into, 
you know, we, we could say at a minimum that in some sense that has changed, particularly since the 2008 financial crisis, that there, there's generally understood to have been a kind of Marx revival, where prior to that, essentially, if you found Marxists, they were largely in academia, um, whereas, yeah. whereas now there's, I mean, largely what that means is that there's a greater presence of people citing and saying they claim yeah putting a fucking rose emoji in their twitter profile yeah sure that kind of thing (laughs) i don't know so what's what's your impression on that um shifting status of of marx and marxism kind of in in the course of our adulthood i would say yeah i guess maybe what's your experience yeah i think i would have to say first that the reason i was drawn to the left of liberalism as a kid was because I had a very, because I was an art nerd growing up basically, because I loved horror films and I associated the right wing. I mean, I loved horror films. I loved provocative musical acts, you know. I I loved the idea of provocation and transgression even as a little kid. Everybody must've thought I was just like a little weirdo when I was a child. And I associated the right wing with you know, Christian orthodoxy, hating art. Uh, I, I, I thought of the NEA battles in the 90s where it was very much the right wing trying to have the NEA defunded because they were like financing naughty gay artists like Maplethorpe or Vonerovitz or whatever. So, so my idea of liberalism back then was that it was like pro-expression, pro-free speech, pro-free speech, like a very sort of like Lenny Bruce style of liberalism that I think we all kind of miss because that was when being a liberal meant standing up for the bourgeois values that are worth standing up for, right? Like I I think of my dad too. He's kind of like a Lenny Bruce liberal. Like he hates racism, but he's not afraid to tell a racist joke. And, you know, he uh, doesn't, he's not anti-capitalist, but he does have a critique of it, you know, or, or, you know, and you supported Bernie Sanders, not because of the socialism, but because Bernie just seemed like a serious person. Like that kind of liberalism, I think, is much less toxic than the version we have now because it's still a value system. So already being predisposed to left liberalism, I was taking at undergrad at the University of Arizona. I was in the journalism program, actually, because at the time I still thought I'd be a photojournalist. And I was doing a little bit of that, Um, but I was taking a philosophy course as an elective. It was like intro to uh, whatever, Western modern philosophy or something like that. It was like Kant and Hegel and then past that. And then we got, we did quite a bit of Marx in that class and the professor was pretty good, but he seemed, I think he was mostly probably right wing, but in a kind of interesting way. But he presented Marx's work rather seriously, but also with the addendum that, oh, you know, this is sort of like utopian kind of thing, right? Like, I feel like that was kind of like the anti-commie tact for a while was like, let's talk about the work, but at the same time be like, oh, this is all pie in the sky, you know, it's not, you know, it's not workable look at the Soviet Union or something. So, but I started reading it and it just made total sense to me. Like how, once you have a materialist underpinning for history, a historical materialist understanding of politics, culture, society, etc., everything starts to make 
sense in a very kind of more illustrative way. Like for you to be able to separate moral imperatives for history from the class dynamics that drive this stuff. Like if you had asked me when I was 18 um, about like the abolition of slavery, I would be like, oh, it's because Abraham Lincoln was a great hero and the people who fought for the North were great heroes. And then you get this idea, oh no, they were actually fighting on behalf of the Northern industrial bourgeoisie who had created a mode of production that had superseded the agrarian capitalism of the South. And all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, that actually kind of connects the dots in a way that makes a lot more sense than just having this like very kind of Western reductive heroes versus villains version of history. This is just economic development. Um, And I guess that's probably, I don't know if I started defining myself as a Marxist right away, but yeah, I was definitely like sympathetic to and getting more interested in left politics later on. I'd get into, you know, Frankfurt School and and Lenin and all these types of things. And it became to it started to make a lot more sense to me. Now, as far as what's happened recently, well, I'll let you continue before, but uh, before I get to it. But yeah, like I think what happens now, what happened is like basically Marxism has become popularized, but in a way that has neutralized any of its actual radical, radical. I, I think Marxism is just like the brand moniker now for being like liberal, you know, for being on the left of liberalism, for for lack of a better explanation. Yeah. So. It's interesting to me because my own experience was similar in the sense that I, you know, I was into punk and things like that. Um, yeah. And I mean, for me, to be honest, you know, when I, I, got, I got pretty into Marxism, like as a teenager, and I would like, I collected like old Soviet regalia and stuff. And nice. I mean, it, it was, it was definitely a kind of aesthetic thing to some extent um, where I, you know, was, it was a sort of, on one level, it was a sort of fuck you dad gesture or something. I mean, not, not to my dad in particular, but, you know, just at, as something that seemed scandalous, right? And it, it yeah, seemed, yeah. Something, you know, particularly like post-Soviet Union, kind of aligning yourself aesthetically with this like dead empire that was also the anathema of the United States was yeah. felt, felt like the ultimate gesture of, of rebellion against um, against, you know, the sort of mainstream American ideology. So, you know, there was that element of it, definitely no, no question. And there was also a, you know, for me, as, as you were just saying, uh, just kind of a powerful explanatory function that, you know, as the way you described it is similar to my experience. And I was writing something about this recently, but it, it's, it's one of these kind of red pill experiences, basically, right? It, it's, it's just one of these, it's the, I mean, it's this idea of a, a hermeneutic of suspicion, right? Because it, it shows you that what, you know, the surface meanings that you'd been fed were actually deceptive and that there was some deeper level you could access, right? Yeah. That would provide a more systematic and fundamental way of accounting for what you were observing. Yeah. Yeah. And you can also see the ways that like, obviously ideology makes a lot more sense too when you factor the political economic underpinnings of it because you see the way that we've had this mode of production now for 
almost like what, three or four centuries. And once you basically understand that all these ideological debates that happen in our society are all basically the same ideology or like different justifying forces for the same mode of production. It also, I think, was helpful in giving me an out, an outward looking in perspective. Like all of a sudden I was less invested in the minutia of like Republican versus Democrat, et cetera. And, and, and more interested in just like understanding the system on the level of it functions on exploitation. It has a tendency towards crisis. It is riddled with contradictions and inequalities. And then once you see that, everything else starts to become a little demystified to you. Like right now, people are out in the world and are just so fucking confused of why everything is so such a mess. But if you're a Marxist and if you have that kind of understanding of politics, it's not that confusing because it's we're at a, another historical crisis in the capitalist mode of production. And with that comes a lot of social and cultural dysfunction. So all of a sudden you feel, you know, it's funny because Marxism talks about alienation so much. Uh, the, the, you know, it's the essential quality of being a working person living in capitalism is to feel alienated. But you feel a little less alienated when you have made Marxism a part of your politics because everything is a little less confusing to you. You know, you're not as invest. You know, it just things don't hurt as much if you can just give it such an easy understanding because it's just like this. This is the system. And when the system falls apart, everything falls apart around it. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's an interesting illustration, I would say, of also how it, you know, for me functioned at a point. I mean, I earlier in my life, I did, you know, when I first kind of came of age, the there was only a very weak left very very weak and you know i remember just perceiving it i mean i went to some protests and things like that but you know it was it was not in any way a very unified seeming movement at all in the way that it does seem that way now um and but you know i think what you were just saying in a sense explains why it has a value even outside of the kind of praxis or whatever you want you know of of yeah. it has a value outside of direct involvement in you know, some sort of political movement that would resemble something like what it what it appears to prescribe. Um, so, and I think, you know, a lot of it functioned largely that way before, again, around 2008, when it had this moment of repopularization, precisely because it was this moment of incredible crisis, when um, people kind of turned back to it, to look for for some sort of insight. And, um, you know, I, I'm curious what you make of my analysis of this, uh, of that moment, but basically the way I see it is something like the following. So prior to 2008, you know, largely the stronghold of any kind of Marxism was was in academia with, with some exceptions, but, you know, largely just these hyper sectarian kind of parties and so on, which have very right. few members and, you know, just were really kind of, um, you know, incredibly insignificant. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and 
you know, kind of like Westboro Baptist Church level, like, <laughs> you know, but but they didn't even have the me- the good media strategy that the Westboro. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, then what happened was um, so so when Marx Marxists were primarily academics, you know, what, what was interesting to, to me observing such people in graduate school was that, you know, in terms in practical terms, they weren't really any different from you know, they got out and voted for Democrats, right? They, they weren't, they weren't really yeah. different from anybody else for the most part. They, um, you know, the, the economics, the sort of centrist economics professors downstairs from the Marxist literature professors, like they all voted the same way. They all had the same yeah. lifestyles. It was all the same. So, you know, so, so it was largely functioning as a kind of intellectual tool for research and, and also a way of kind of defining yourself within the, the sort of marketplace of ideas in academia, right? Um, and then, you know, largely what happened was you had uh, kind of these popularizers like David Harvey. I mean, I guess Zizek would fall in this category too. Yeah. Um, who, who really, um, at, the, at the moment of the financial crisis, kind of um, gained a, a very large audience and Harvey's, um, you know, public uh, lectures and so on, on, on capital, you know, but I, I would say we're, we're a huge um, and impactful factor in this kind of popularization. And so, you know, you, you had a, a good reason why um, people were suddenly interested in learning about Marx and um, it, it essentially followed what, what you were describing as to his, you know, basic value as a theorist, right. For thinking about crisis. Yeah. But in terms of the kind of social base of that, I I tend to think it, you know, I mean, I think this is pretty well established. It, from the beginning, was largely concentrated among, you know, university, gra- like young university graduates, right, who were um, some of the most affected by the, the economic downturn in that period, right? Yeah. So the, the base that you had for this kind of revived Marxism was, was always this kind of... Um, fraction of the educated sort of upper middle class that found itself in cities and under and unemployed in the years after the 2008 crash. And I don't think I'm saying anything very revelatory there, but the, you know, so the way I would consider um, the entire unfolding of a sort of popularized Marxism is that you, you know, it, it only really makes sense in relation to the kind of fortunes of that particular class and its positioning in relation to the larger class that it essentially aspires to be part of, right? And the, the institutions that it that it aims to find a place within. And, you know, I can speak more from the academic side of that, which is that you have a lot of people who were, you know, you have a huge downturn in academic hiring. And so you, if you think about publications like Jacobin, you know, a huge amount of the people that they've published in Self included are you know sort of underemployed um, PhD yeah. people with PhDs, and and that's also kind of who reads them, right? And I think Bashkar Sankara has pretty much said that. Um, so <laughs> you know, so it, it, it's the the entire kind of emergence of that movement really has to do with this class that um, has a particular economic position after the two thousand eight crash. And, you know, I can speak to that because, like, I'm part of that. Um, but, you know, so 
So a huge amount of the, the mystification that goes on, as I would understand it, has to do with the way that people within that class need to use Marxism in order to um, kind of construct themselves as a sort of heroic equivalent of the proletariat. Right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, th- and this is the thing that none of them are willing to. And, you know, in relation to the, the sort of inside outside positioning, you know, what this means is that, you know, you have, um, say, young people who are hired at, you know, major media outlets who are, who identify as Marxists or whatever, right, and who who will write, you know, op-eds or columns or whatever, where they're um, giving a positive view of Marxism. And that you wouldn't really have seen it like the New York Times in, you know, 2000, but you did start seeing it around 2013, 14, 15, probably. And yeah. uh, so I don't know, this, this is, the way I see it is it's, it's gained this more ambiguous position because of its popularity among this particular group of sort of aspirants. Yeah. The age after the 2008 crash for good reason, you know, found, started to find it valuable, um, but have needed to kind of turn it into one of the myths that they can use to kind of valorize their own position um, yeah. within, the, within the sort of conflicts that have emerged out of that crisis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look at like, you think of like, uh, what's our favorite uh, transracial Jacobin? Oh, Carl Beeger. Uh, Carl Beeger has basically, you know, he goes online and he basically brags about being on welfare, you know, like as if that's the justifying uh, justifying aspect of his politics, but <laughs> Marxism isn't about to be lifting up like over like elite educated, but downwardly mobile, petty bourgeois welfare recipient. You know what I mean? It's supposed to be about unifying the universal class, which is the, the working class. And I feel like I do to some extent think that they've just tried to make Marxism into like a branding identity as a thing to legitimize themselves as in the marketplace of ideas, because class struggle doesn't really demand that we go around making everybody feel like they're Marxist. You know, you don't have to go tell proletarians like be Marxist. You have to just be like, come together and fight for the improved material conditions of you and your communities. So it's like, there's like this insistence on on the sickles and the hammers and the roses, which all speaks as, you know, who's actually pretty good about this stuff as the, um, like analyzing the brand strategizing of what calls itself the left now is actually Peter Coffin in the videos he does and his YouTube show. He's gotten really sharp lately. And you can tell this and when you interact with these people too as well, they're protecting a brand. So, because Marxism is very clear. It demands imminent critique, hard Hegelian criticism of contradictions and exposure of all that is fraudulent. Like there's not one great Marxist theorist, whether Lenin, Gramsci, whoever, that was not brutally critical of what called itself the left in their time. And yet, the socialists, the Marxists, the communists, etc., are so uncomfortable with hearing critique about their politics, hearing any sort of negating theory about what their politics represents. 
it's quite reactionary in its content in that way. And this has like varying qualities. There's varying levels of it. Like, like the saddest part about the Bernie thing to me is I remember in 2016, I was pretty much already kind of done with bourgeois electoral politics, but I, I was sold on the Bernie thing because in my mind, I justified it as, oh, here's maybe a guy who could teach people how to make demands again as a class, as a working class. But now if I look back on it, was it really that? Or was it the fact that I too am a downwardly mobile petty bouge and was attracted to his specific policies? Now, regardless of that, I think what's tragic is I think Bernie Sanders is probably a good guy. One of the, maybe in recent American politics, the only kind of non, he's, he's like not a narcissist, which in a culture of narcissism is... Uh, quite amazing, which is funny because I remember Fran Lebowitz said he's the most narcissistic man she's ever seen before. And it's like, I think he's probably one of the least narcissistic men, at least in public life on that magnitude. But what Bernie ended up doing, and Amy actually said this on on our show, she's going to be on in the next couple episodes, is that the biggest tragedy of Bernie Sanders is everybody said that he created this huge uh surge of new socialist politics but that's not what it was what he created was a new generation of democrats that happens to think they're socialists without having any real comprehension of what socialism is and what it's supposed to achieve because there's actually data that shows this that prior to 2016 the vast majority of people under the age of 35 were not swayed by either party then bernie comes along has a few good ideas. And we got to admit his 2016 campaign was rather astonishing in how much excitement and enthusiasm it generated just to have like one guy just to point out the glaring flaws in our system. So with that, you have all these kids that support Bernie. He loses, probably gets fucked over. And then he says, you have to vote for Hillary. And then all of a sudden people are already in that mindset of lessers of two evils voting the next generation of democratic support is shored up. And I actually think that even though that there's this more one dimensional image of this resurgence of Marxism, I think we're as far away from it as we've ever actually been. What's happened is the real politic has gotten obscured through these sort of brand monikers, but we're we're definitely no closer to class struggle. We're definitely no closer to um, class consciousness even. I mean, it's, it's as bad as it's ever been. And instead of, and I feel like at this moment, any Marxist or any leftist, whatever, should be trying to understand why this shit went belly up so bad. Uh, Chris Catrone, I don't know if you read his piece, but Introduction to Marxism in the Age of Trump. Um, he talks about how this crisis in neoliberalism led to Syriza, Corbyn, Brexit, Bernie, and then Trump. And then all five of these populist uprisings went to shit. And now the neoliberal order is as solidified in its power as it ever has been. 
if you're not asking why at this point, and if you're not asked like to not ask questions about why these politics fail to not understand or like basically to continuously advocate for a politics of failure is to, to me, to continue to advocate for the status quo, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I think that's a, that's actually a good segue into your article, which in some way addresses why we have to turn elsewhere in part because of the, the way that at least a certain version of Marxism has become so heavily identified with these ultimately reactionary forces, right, that, that have to do with essentially <clears throat> enabling uh, a sort of turning back of the clock or, or a kind of, um, you know, recontainment of the, the sort of populist energies that have surged up in the past 10 or 12 years. Yeah. Um, you know, to, to kind of recap some of what you, what you were just saying, you know, the problem is that, you know, as I was putting it, we basically have this class that's invested in um, asserting and, and maintaining its own status institutionally and politically. And it has identified itself ideologically with certain versions of Marxism or socialism. Um, but it is unable to be genuinely critical of the, the sort of class configuration of the current left and what that means because precisely because that's what it is itself invested in. Right. And so that's the sense in which it is a reactionary force, right? Because it, um, it, it needs the theory in order to sort of mystify its own position rather than to shed light on it. Yeah, um, exactly. And this is why, um, you know, the, the, you know, currently existing left is most, I would say, or, you know, one of the things that is most averse to is that kind of analysis. Um, is, yeah. is the kind of analysis that targets its own class status, right? Yeah. Yep, um, yep. And I, I just wrote something about, I wrote a review of Catherine Liu's book, um, Virtue Hoarders. Oh, I haven't checked that out yet. Which caused me to um, revisit this sort of PMC debate, right, that occurred in the last couple of years and has sort of been forgotten now. But what's interesting about it is that, you know, th there was this article by um, Gabriel Winant that articulated something that I think was other, usually a, a, a point simply taken for granted, right? Which is that the, the prospect of the, the currently existing left is coterminous with the prospect of a kind of alliance between the PMC and the work right that um of what is always kind of just on the horizon right now the problem of course is that the most recent election results completely refute the idea that that is in the court in the process of happening right in fact right. it seems to be going in the opposite there seems to be a ever greater fissure between those two class formations in in terms of their you know uh, their participation in electoral politics so you know, the point is that um, either the PMC has to be defended or it has to be, or its existence has to be denied as a distinct class has to be denied, right? And yeah. I think that's an example of how, you know, the, this class needs to mystify its own position and basically claim that it already is the working class or something like that um, in order to um, hold on to this kind of 
Marxian self mythologization that yeah. has been created over the past decade or so. Yeah. Well, it's like DSA, AOC, Jacobin, people are like, they're not doing class politics and they actually are doing class politics. They're just not doing the class politics of the class that they're claiming to. It's, it's their class politics. You know, it's a narrow niche. That's why they have to keep defending AOC. It's not that they actually think she's going to make any gains for working class people. She's making gains for them. She's creating a huge fucking patronage pipeline that runs through the DNC up to the tippity top of Silicon Valley. And people are looking to milk that shit because how else are you going to make goddamn money in this world? You can't do it in any other industry anymore. Either you own things or you're propagandizing for the people that own things. It seems to be really your only to reek or, hey, make, you know, make a Patreon. That, that seems to be the only way to do it these days. So, yeah, man, I don't know. Like, I, you know, because I've just had this, it's, it's, it's fresh in my mind right now because I've been dealing with AOC simps literally for the past 24 hours and all they can ever do is what are you doing right now to organize or to save the world? What they're trying to do is discredit critique and they're doing it. And like, I think the obvious thing that should always just be clear. I think I mentioned this. I've mentioned this somewhere in something I wrote, but anytime like discourse policing of this magnitude is taking place, it's not on behalf of marginalized people. It's on behalf of the fucking owners. Who else would it be for? You know, like working class people don't have the power to say, I don't want to hear that. No, I think, you know, it's so, and I know we're going to talk about it because there's always been, liberalism has always had a very kind of niche, petty bouge morality as its justifying force. But what we're seeing now is that certain aspects of left-wing cultural ideology have merged with petty bourgeois morality. And that to me is like the most awful thing because it's not just politics that are fucked now. It's like the things that we love, like literature and art. They're just nonstop propaganda all the time. But sorry, man, let's get to the uh, reactionary piece. Yeah, not at all. So this is, as I said, a good segue moment for talking about your essay called A Marxist Defends the Great Reactionaries. This, um, this essay, it has to do with what we've just been discussing, which is that there's been this kind of new fusion. And, and this has encompassed many more things than, than just the, the sort of political activities of this, this sort of left that has emerged. But it also has a great deal to do with uh, the way that the art world, the entertainment world, and various other kinds of institutions have have been folded into this sort of larger um, political coalition, which particularly um, under the, you know, you, you definitely saw a lot of this starting to happen in the Obama era, where just he, he managed to attract it because of his kind of, I don't know, stylishness. And yeah, I remember the uh... attract to him a lot of of sort of cultural figures. Um, right. And remember like the Obama, like Che Guevara kind of t-shirts that like Shepard Ferry did. Yeah. Like 
this guy's like a normie centrist imperialist and you're putting the face of a communist revolutionary who was literally had his brain like literally murdered for his ball like yeah i think that was the beginning of like the hyper absurdity of just like radical aesthetics being attached to like of just like the deflating of expectations of what radical politics were supposed to be yeah and so it's it's this point at which all of these, and you know, this was a, lo- a long-standing process of kind of integration of countercultural aesthetics and projects into the mainstream, which goes back a very long way. But that you did really have this unified front that started to form in the Obama years, and then really took shape in the Trump years as a, um, you know, the sort of unified resistance, popular front, whatever. You know, yeah, exactly. These kind of fantasies of of uh, you know the anti-fascist struggle, but um, so as we've established, um, these you know self-identified left forces are um, can be understood as as reactionary ones, right? Because ultimately they're effectively dedicated to um, promoting particular <clears throat> a particular class position within the kind of maintained neoliberal order. And so, right. so these um, these forces that appear to be the left can be understood as as reactionary in that sense, um, and in their kind of uncritical their commitment to a kind of uncritical stance um, vis-a-vis the kind of class configurations of the present. So this kind of sets us up for your article, which I take to be um, a, a case for why uh, figures who are often understood as reactionary. At, at a moment when, you know, the sort of radical left or countercultural movements have kind of been integrated into the DNC in some sense. Right, yeah. Um, can offer something like a kind of, um, they, they can offer a, a, a sort of outsider position from which certain insights can be gained that, that we can't totally. gain from, from the mainstream left. Yeah, totally. And I don't think that this is ahistorical either. I think there has always been, um, you know, I I start the piece off talking about uh, Balzac um, because he was certainly no Marxist, but he hated bourgeois capitalism and his contempt for that and his nostalgia for something of yesteryear gave him a brutal clarity when outlining the conditions that capitalism creates. And that's what I was, that's what I was interested in. Um, but yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, we can start with Marx and Engels' appreciation of Balzac. Another figure who might fit into this from an earlier time would be Lukács, who yep. also had a great appreciation for people like Balzac, like Walter Scott, I mean, who were all essentially kind of reactionary traditionalists, right? Who yeah. um, had some kind of nostalgic... Um, looking back towards the, you know, the lost kind of organic unity of of the um, the ancien regime or whatever, um, and from that position, we're able to offer a kind of critical perspective on capitalism as it evolved and and um, you know massively disrupted yeah social life in the nineteenth century yeah and I was I, very cognizant of that as well I mean sorry yeah was very cognizant of that as well. Yeah, and I love Nietzsche's anti-capitalism as well because it wasn't Marxist. It was more just like 
capitalism was empowering just like the most spineless fucking cowards in a society with no will to power. And I am curious, uh, I am interested in that critique, even though it's not political economic, I, I do find it insightful because if you look at today's billionaires, they're all sniveling, spineless fucking nerds. And and at least Nietzsche has like some bit of a framework for understanding how that works. Like capitalism, you know, it rewards conformity and it rewards mediocrity. And from that perspective, I do understand like if it's if bourgeois society, if this is the best it can do, why not have like a great monarch with the pageantry and the and the and the whole and the and the power of it demystified brutally clear it's right there i mean even like i know lots of people have issues with foucault but i do think there are some things worth saving about his ideas especially in his historical analysis like off with the head is a hell of a lot you know it it's honestly easier to respect than just being thrown into the fucking prison industrial complex or the therapeutic complex like at least then power is demystified but this piece came about, and I was already aware of Marx and Engels' enthusiasm for Balzac. I think what makes it seem more provocative right now is just a culture that we're in, which is also what makes it sing more as an essay and as a concept, as a creative production or whatever. Because this should not be like a shocking statement to say that there's insight in people that have different politics than you. But as of right now, where everything has become this sort of team sport, reactionary force, you're with us, you're with or you're not, then that becomes a kind of radical idea. The thing that I was drawn to is what Marx and Engels were into about Balzac was the, the visceral impact of his contempt for bourgeois liberalism. It wasn't even super political economic. It's just like, you can feel it in his writing. He hates this society that had been evolving since the French Revolution. Frederick Engels wrote, Balzac was politically a legitimist. His work is a constant elegy on the inevitable decay of good society. His sympathies are with the class most doomed to extinction. So, He's, while not advocating for a Marxist revolution or for a Marxist class consciousness, he did understand that, yes, even though capitalism was making this class of this managerial class rich and upwardly mobile, conditions were actually getting worse for working class people than it was under the great monarchs, because the great monarchs even though their power was absolute, they were still tethered to noble concepts or what Balzac would consider noble concepts, such as patriotism, loyalty. They were tethered to land and country. Now, a lot of communists would come at me for that. Oh, communism's supposed to be global, blah, blah, blah. Yes, and eventually communism is supposed to go global. But, you know, they were also very clear about the fact that the first priority is the class struggle within your own nation state. And then I just sort of started thinking about their relationship to Balzac and how quite literally uh, guys like D.C. Miller and Nick Land and Welbeck 
had made me a better, whatever, call it, uh, Marxist or whatever, communist, than certainly anyone who writes for Jacobin magazine. And I would say, you know, 90, I mean, I don't want to say that there are no thinkers on the left that I, uh, these days that I'm not interested in. Certainly, I don't know if you've read Ephraim Karlbach's work. He, he's in the Platypus Society, but his work's been really kind of blowing me away recently. But generally, these kinds of guys, for different reasons, gave me a better understanding of society, politics, political economy, etc. D.C. Miller, I would say, for the work that I've done in these in this last two years where I'm exploring, I mean, what System of Systems is about and what a lot of my essays has been about is about how art and culture, all of it, from visual art, literature, cinema, Hollywood, all of it has been subsumed by the left side of capitalism and liquidated into propaganda mechanism. You know, even with, you have, for instance, even if there's, there are artists, most of my friends are visual artists and a lot of them do make work that is challenging intellectually. And I'm actually writing this thing for Amphetamine Sulfate's new magazine about that. But art and culture, they have all these inbuilt mechanisms for maintaining a status quo from which dissenting ideas just do not make it to the upper echelons of these industries anymore. The people that do have maybe less than, like maybe they're right of center or left of the left of center, I'm sure that they're in these culture industries, but they end up having to be very cryptic about their work because like all reactionary politics, there is a huge disciplinary machine to maintain that people don't fall out of line. Now, DC Miller used to kind of scare me you know, like DC's work, he pulls no punches. And when I was still more committed to a leftist politics, there are things in his work that would kind of freak me out. But then I realized, oh, and also I should clarify that DC doesn't consider himself a reactionary. He wants me to clarify this, but a surrealist of the right. Um, so DC, the surrealist of the right, has for six years now, been talking about these ideas that have just become a part of my work and has suffered immense professional and cultural ostracization because of his ideas. And you can feel, I know you guys are both writing for that cool website now, right, Jeff? IMG1776. Yeah, that, that site looks pretty awesome. I should get in touch with them. But like DC's writing is just so goddamn good. Like, I'm jealous of it to an extent because it's it, it, it has a kind of heroism to it and how courageous he is for taking these repugnant people to task. And you can tell that he's generally not ideologically aligned because back to back weeks, he made a pro-Trump article. And then the next week he made an article about how repugnantly stupid Bojo is. So really he what he's advocating for is hard to hard to understand in a lot of ways, but no one out there has better helped me understand the mechanisms of propaganda in the 21st century. Nick Land, I like, um, 
Nick Land, I like the way that he writes about capitalism as almost like a kind of metaphysical force, like with a, like a, a what, what does Deleuze call it? It's like machines and, you know, it's like this, it's like this, you know, he's into Lovecraft. So it's kind of this like cosmic Cthulhu force of nature that in the 21st century, especially does escape Marxist theory to an extent because digital capitalism is almost its own thing in comparison with the industrial capitalism that he was mostly criticizing and writing about. And I also think Nick Land is also just very good for like, he seems to understand the left in a way that a lot of leftists don't. And I mean, it understands the the reactionary function of the left, right? Yeah. I would say, you know, it goes further than I would on that subject probably, but (laughs) essentially his, um, because, I mean, because it's not really possible to extract it from his sort of um, accelerationist vision. But yeah, I mean, his, you know, I think I, I think I can call this up, but, you know, that when he says uh, the Marxist dream of dynamism without competition was merely a dream, an old monotheist created yeah. the wolf lying down with the lamb. Post-capitalism has no real meaning except an end to the engine of change, right? So that's, you know, I'd say... Um, can you know congruent with our previous discussion of the kind of reactionary function of the left? Now I think he's saying it in a much more absolute. He's asserting it in a much more absolute sense, not not simply about what identifies itself as the left today, but it, that's essentially his analysis of Marxism itself as a project. Um, yeah. So, but but it is quite a you know it's it's bracing stuff because essentially his his position is that. Um, all of the tendencies that are arrayed on sort of the left side of capital are decelerative and therefore, you know, reactionary in the sense that they're, they're trying to, um, trying to push back uh, the, the sort of, um, you know, monsters that have emerged out of, out of crises and, um, you know, keep everything within a, a sort of neoliberal equilibrium. Right. And also I think Nick Land just like, you know, I think he under he understands like a certain defeatist tendency in the left that for me, I just can't avoid anymore, where it almost just seems like the function of left politics is to generate enthusiasm, lose, and then and then employ that enthusiasm in service of the maintaining of the status quo. And Nick Land is such like a perpetual outsider now is, you know, he's able to talk about those things and not face like he's already been ostracized to such an extreme degree, aside from like the whole urbanomic crew that he kind of gets away with it. And um, I mentioned him before, but Ephraim Karlbach, uh, he's going to be coming on system of systems tomorrow. Actually, I'll send you the episode, but he wrote this terrific critique of Mark Fisher and it is interesting with Mark Fisher because the guy was hugely influential to me as like an artist who's interested in politics, you know, through capitalist realism through ontology. But I did have this feeling that I'm sure, you know, this guy, Matt Colcoon or whatever the. Yeah. Know? I wrote about his book actually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he's like appointed himself as like the gatekeeper of Mark Fisher's legacy And he went after me once for saying that, oh yeah, a friend of mine and I were pontificating on the fact that like all the hate that Mark Fisher got from the Vampire's Castle 
must have been, you know, awful. Like, you know, must have at least, if not caused him to kill himself, but I'm, I'm sure it didn't help. You know, I'm sure it didn't help with the sadness that he felt. But he turned it into this thing of like Mark Fisher had let go of the vampire's castle and he had a new political program of hope or whatever. And I'm thinking to myself, but that political program, that was basically like what? Corbynism? And it was acid communism. And the acid communism essay is pretty cool. But I mean, like, it does feel like it was like this twofold nostalgia for like Corbynite old left labor and then like uh, late 60s new left that we all know formed some of the ideological origins of the neoliberal order. So it feels like in in a large sense, Mark Fisher became stricken by the same capitalist realism that he blew our minds by giving language to. And I think with Nick Land, he understands that the left is basically a politics of failure and capitulation. And for me as someone who wants to at least someday see some kind of political progress in my life, I think these things are important to acknowledge and see clearly if you do actually hope for any kind of real political change. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's kind of a larger point there about sort of honesty and clarity that going back to what we were discussing earlier, the way that so much of this discourse that's being produced is premised on some fundamental denials and obfuscations. And I just, I think, and this is something I, I feel like I've, I've always felt that, you know, you, you just have to, I mean, I, I deeply appreciate any writer, regardless of to what extent I agree with their prescriptions, who is just clear-headed and capable right. of, and also capable of just looking at reality without moralizing, in a sense. Um, yeah. Is, is, able, is able to kind of gain a certain, at least the degree of, I mean, I, I think a degree of kind of amorality in the sense of just being able to coldly examine the world is actually necessary in order to kind of gain some degree of moral um, grasp of, you know, what exactly is wrong with it. Um, I think there's so much mixing up of how things are and how things should be. And, you know, so much of the, the, the kind of dishonesty and denial of, of just what I see as like the dominant strains of kind of cultural criticism and, and political analysis today are, you know, they're, they're just deeply dishonest and, I really will appreciate any writer who is capable of just giving us that kind of cold and, you know, um, you know, kind of amoral to the extent of, of not, you know, of, of just trying to show us what's there rather than, or before getting around to judging it or yeah, letting what's right and wrong about it. If that well, it's fa- totally. And what's fascinating to me is like, the reason I wanted to move to New York was to be an artist and to hang out with people that I assumed were like the radical free thinkers, the iconoclasts, the artists, whatever. And what I've, and you know, I of course have friends that I would consider to be in that sort of mindset, you know, Matthew Maloof, my friend Bradford Kessler, whatever. But like, but what I found when I got here was the most sort of despicable conformism 
I, I could have ever imagined. Cause it's not even just like, it's not like old timey conformism. It's like conformism, conform, it's conforming to an entirely constructed, like a, an ideology constructed by our like political decay or something. It's very kind of malevolent and grotesque. And, you know, cause it's like, I, I'm in the art world. So that's kind of my grounding for a lot of these ideas. The art world has always had like a one-to-one -one relationship with, with bourgeois financial power, but at least you could count on artists to question that a little bit. Um, the, Vien the Viennese actionists, you know, Paul McCarthy, Mike Kelly, these people were very anti, the surrealists, the Dadists, all very anti-bourgeois. I think with Andre Breton, that's kind of up for debate, but you know, whatever. That was, it was very much trying to disaggregate creative production from the academy, the elite, you know? Now that's just gone. I mean, like everyone kind to have a career in the first place, you have to totally fall in line with these reductive politics. You have to delude yourself into thinking your reductive politics are on behalf of quote unquote marginalized people. I don't know if you saw it this morning, but you know, Glenn Ligon, the artist. I'm not sure if I do actually, but I'm semi kind of like, yeah, he's kind of like postmodern black artist and he gets all sorts of woke accolades he posted a picture of his cab driver who had a hole in the protective layer and was like, Oh, this guy, you know, he's putting my life at risk. <laughs> you know, it's like this rich artist talking shit to a poor like cab driver. And then everyone trying to kiss the ass of the rich artist is like, Oh, this is an offensive outrage. I think I'm the only one who posted something like, oh, wow, rich guy hates poor people. <laughs> you know, how, how original. And, and that should have just like, it's just kind of rampant. And so that's very, if I had like a singular goal, because I don't expect myself to start a communist revolution. I, I, I'm just so confused about what to do politically right now. And, and where we're supposed to go from here. I do know that to get anywhere, we have to be brutally realistic about what we're dealing with. And that's what I'm trying to do. But in my small corner of the universe, what I'm really trying to do is to create a space for art and ideas that negate cultural hegemony. I want dissent, you know, I want new ideas. I want us to get out of stasis. I you know, that's kind of what System of Systems is about. It's a critique of how art is a form of propaganda for the left side of capital, as well as a celebration of art that I think is challenging that to any extent. That's what I'm going to do with this new Substack project that I'm working on. Uh, I have a book deadline in June, which is kind of specific, but still like trying to bring back the sense of transgression and theater of cruelty, if you will, to to... Uh, contemporary creative production. I mean, like, let's talk about Welbeck for a second. I mean, like, Welbeck is probably the last fiction writer of his stature that so clearly is politically and ideologically opposed to the people that end up, like, writing reviews of his books and whatnot, which is what kind of makes him fascinating 
Dave, how many like Welbeck takedown pieces do you think there have been throughout the years? I mean, there's like a lot about his Islamophobia or whatever, but he's maintained this huge audience. And I think it's because one, the, the power of his art and his talent is so seismic as to be undeniable. And also because his work illustrates the singular alienation of living in 21st century capitalism, of living in a dying empire, of expectations deflating. So even if people might be opposed to his, whatever, politics on Islamic culture, his misogyny or whatever, they end up being secondary to how utterly true everything he writes actually is. I mean, atomized, uh, elementary Particles, alternate title is Atomized. He wrote that in 1998, 10 years before the crash. Atom- I mean, and that's the word of our century at this point, just how we increasingly become disconnected from the collective and learn to, you know, the thing with intersectionality is it's like, first of all, it muddles the stakes of class politics and class analysis to an extreme extent, because all of a sudden you have to pay attention to this and that and this and that. But I think its main function has been not to change anything politically, but to teach people how to marketize their own trauma or identity signifiers better. And I don't know, are you a Welbeck fan? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm probably, I haven't uh, read him as comprehensively as you have. Um, mm. I do, you know, going back to what you're bringing up there, I remember reading him, I think, yeah, when Elementary Particles first came out in English probably in the early 2000, well, I'm not sure when it was exactly published, but I was in college at the time and I'm pretty sure, I remember reading the hardcover, so I'm pretty sure it was like recently released. Yeah. And yeah, I found it um, <laughs> immensely depressing and depressive and I was um, in quite a depressive state of mind in that period. And so I found it both um, very powerful and also kind of almost too much yeah my own um my own you know state of mind which it which it did in many ways reflect quite powerfully and um as a result of that i think i i found it almost like too too strong stuff <laughs> to, to pick up again for a while but i have um yeah i have gone back to him again in the past five or six years and i, I haven't read everything but um I do think he's, uh, yeah, he's fast. I mean, I got interested in him again in part because of what you just brought up, because I, I think at the time when the, you know, it, it was becoming so clear that the culture, culture industry had kind of congealed around this pretty rigid orthodoxy and that he was such a clear outlier. And it be, I, I started to become interested just in, you know, my own kind of earliest years of like consuming culture in the 90s. Um, and the way that at that time there were kind of possibilities and openings that that went away after that. And so he right. seems like a really good example of that, of somebody who kind of would not really slip into the um, to the current cultural ecosystem at all. Right. He would be spat right. out. By it. Um, I mean, I sort I'm sort so I'm interested in all these figures who in some ways seem in a less extreme way. I would actually say a writer I know much better who I think we talked about when, when I came on your podcast was uh, Bolaño, who I think is somebody who probably would not really make it in the same way in the Anglophone publishing world as he did when he, when he first kind of 
came on the scene here, which, which I think was around 2006, 2007, when he first started getting systematically translated. Right. Um, which was pretty, pretty soon after his death. But I just tend to think he's, um, he doesn't quite check the right boxes, um, kind of politically and culturally, and, you know, is actually sort of, you know, it, it, not, not as sort of uh, overtly problematic and antagonistic as, as somebody like Welbeck, but um, he is somebody I wonder about how he would be received today. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think with Bolaño too, like, I miss that image of a writer when the writers were like mm. cool artists in our culture. Like you see the pictures of him with like the really cool leather jacket and okay. like the, yeah, exactly. It, it feels like we're in a culture right now where art is more visible, but at the same time, I think we've lost sight of what art is supposed to be. You know, I mean, Zizek talks about this, of course, capitalism as a way of producing and subsuming its own descent. But but I think it's like maybe even a bit more complicated than that, because, you know, I used to lo- I still love noise music, but I used to think like noise music was this thing that would just be impossible to turn into branding because it's just so kind of unlistenable and subcultural and strange and and now you have the Red Bull Music Academy, right? Like, like doing noise concerts with like as branding exercises for Red Bull fucking drinks or whatever. I just don't think it's so impossible for anything to exist outside the market now. And the market always wants kind of like the most neutralized, tame version of a thing. And I actually think right now, we are in probably since modernism, the most, a period when artists and genuine iconoclasts and free thinkers are more hated and despised than ever. Now, that doesn't mean it hates all people who make art. I mean, like artists in that kind of what Artaud was or, or what William Blake was, you know, the artist as kind of like, a mystic, someone who was allowed to be outside the structures, someone who was celebrated for being different, I think that's gone. And that to me is like, and that's when I first started really speaking out about this stuff, because politics have been fucked my entire life. But when the left started becoming the thing that hated art, that is when, that was when I kind of had to say like, no more of this. So We'll wrap it up in a minute, but I think that's a good place to go to just one uh, moment in another essay, recent essay of yours, Art's Moral Fetish, which covers many of the, the themes you've just been been addressing yeah, and which everyone should check out. Uh, but briefly, I wanted to, since this is a um, Baudrillard sympathetic project of outsider theory, uh, I wanted to touch on a, a passage um, that where you cite his uh, The Conspiracy of Art from 1996. And I'm just going to quote from you. Um, Baudrillard in The Conspiracy of Art said that art had no more reason to exist. He declared art meaningless and to use his preferred terminology, null. The philosopher believed that art had lost sight of its mystique due to its divorce with the desire of illusion during the com- commercial explosion of the 1980s when art was reduced to commodity. But if illusion of, illusionism in art has found a second life, as Baudrillard predicted it might, it's mostly as propaganda. Yeah. So, 
I'm, I'm curious about, um, you know, what utility Baudrillard and possibly other theorists and philosophers you're, you're interested in might have for um, opposing this propagandistic turn, um, in part by helping us kind of understand where it's coming from and how it functions. Yeah, well, you know, Baudrillard theorized the simulacrum which has never been clearer that that's what we live in right now. But I think it's also important to acknowledge how that thing is sort of produced, protected, insulated from dissent or whatever. And I truly believe that art has become a very important function of that, of harboring these illusions. Because like, you know, it's very clear to me the use that like, I mean, that artists would have for legitimizing the status quo. Because if you can show that these sort of left of center sort of thinkers still end up voting for Joe Biden, then it's sort of, it gives permission to everybody, right? But um, what are some other thinkers that I think are important read right now? You know, I... I've mentioned Artaud a couple times, but I've been reading a ton of Artaud for the book that I'm writing. And what's interesting about Artaud is he was pretty much, he wasn't political, um, at least not in a traditional way. He broke with the surrealists, or the surrealists, I should say, broke up with him because Andre Breton, and, and Breton was claiming at the time to be a communist, but it's pretty clear that he was like an anarchoid moralist. And he wanted the Surrealist Internationale to start focusing on communism. We're going to do political action right now. But Artaud was like, what? We're artists. What Ar Artaud said he wanted a revolution of the body, which was basically a you know, the way he talks about the mind and the body is fascinating. It's like the mind is a body and must be shaped like a body. And, and Artaud wanted to create an artwork that was totally unaffiliated to any sort of like pre-existing structures. I think what we need to celebrate right now is any kind of art or any kind of thought that can exist outside these paradigms. That does not mean it has to be left or right. I think we're in a place right now where any idea that diverts from the hegemonic norm is, is quite valuable. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. Thanks, Adam, for coming on. It's been a stimulating conversation as always. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on, Jeff. This was a pleasure. I will put links to Adam's work and... Again, check out System of Systems, which if you're interested in this podcast, I'm sure you will also be interested in. So, Absolutely. All right. Thanks.